we are going back to Luke. Luke chapter 15. Been there for a couple weeks, or at least one week. I don't know how long I've been there. But we're going to camp out at Luke 15 for a while. It's a, it's a parable. It's a very well-known parable. I want to read the first seven verses, Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, that's Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man received sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he is found? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now verse 3, it says, So he spoke this parable to them, saying. Now it's one thing for somebody 2,000 years ago to read those words. He spoke this parable to them, saying, It's another thing for me to read those words in the 21st century. I can't assume, and it's not because you're dull or anything, that you know what a parable is. Okay, so what is a parable? It's a good question. I want you to turn over. You don't have to. Uh, You can if you want. To Matthew 13, we learn something a little about parables from our Lord himself. In Matthew 13, there's a string of what is called parables given by our Lord one of them was the parable of the tares, and I just want to read verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now watch his answer. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Okay, so the parable of the tares had a sower, somebody who was sowing seed, throwing seed out. Now he says, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. It signifies me. The field is the world. So the parable of the tares had a field in it, in the story. It had a sower and a field upon which he was throwing these seeds. He says, the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. So the parable of the tare, wheat and tare, had good seeds But the tares, the bad seeds, are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. So there was an enemy in there sowing bad seeds. He says, that represents the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. You can turn back to Luke 13. What did we just read? We read Jesus' explanation of what is called a parable. So what is a parable? It's a story, storytelling device that has signs in it, that has figures of speech that has metaphors, words that signify other things. Okay, the sower signified the son of man. But he's telling the story in the context of a culture that would have known about sowing. Ours doesn't. You do now? Because I just told you about it a little. So the point is, a parable is, ought to be explained Did Jesus always explain in detail his parables? 
No, he just threw them out there. And he expected his audience to connect dots. Jesus explained to his disciples in the Matthew passage what the elements of the parable signified. Every single element. Remember, we talked about parables a couple weeks ago. In the 19th century, there was a liberal German. If you're a German, sorry, I'm not castigating you in particular, just your ancestors. There were liberal Germans. There was this one liberal German. I forgot his name. It's like 19 syllables with two vowels in it, you know, how sometimes they do that. And he said, no, parables don't have several elements. Although they might, we can't know what they mean. It only has one thing it's trying to say. And guess who latched onto that? All the conservatives and evangelicals and even reformed. So you can read reformed commentators and they say, when you preach parables, just try to get one point. And my comeback to that is accept the parable in Matthew 13 because there are a lot of points exposed by Jesus himself at that home to his disciples, which the old guys, you know the old guys are, before the, before the modern guys, um, all of them would say Jesus gave his disciples a lesson on how to interpret parables. In other words, each element signifies something that it takes a little dig- digging to identify what each element is signifying, but each element is signifying something. So where do you go for help if you go to a parable where Jesus hasn't explained all the elements? So you read a parable like the one we read in Luke chapter 15, 4 through 7. That's hopefully, if I get back to my sermon notes, that's where we're going to land It's a parable, but it doesn't have an explanation by Jesus. But another parable has an explanation by Jesus, which explanation I think ought to teach us how to make those connections. The sower is the son of man. Now, did Jesus make the title son of man up? You know, he used it like 48 times of himself throughout the gospels. He didn't make it up. Readers or listeners, if you've read the Old Testament, son of man is in there at least three times, Psalm 8, Ezekiel 1, or something like that. And then a very important context, Daniel 7, son of man. And Daniel had a night vision. He saw this son of man figure ascending into heaven and taking a posture of enthronement and ruling over a kingdom that referred to our Lord Jesus in prophetic language. So back to the sower. The sower is the son of man. Jesus didn't make son of man up. Guess where he got it from? The Bible. What a novel idea. Take the elements of parables and search the other scriptures to try to identify what these signs are signifying. Use the Bible to help you interpret the Bible. Now, when it's put that way, hopefully you're tracking with me. You're going, well, you might not say it out loud, but everybody that's tracking with me is thinking, duh, right? (laughs) Unfortunately, there's been this hermeneutical straitjacket put on the people of God by ministers for a long time that doesn't allow parables to be explained by other portions of Scripture. 
You're going to hear this parable today explained by me with other portions of Scripture, or at least the truths of the other portions of Scripture put in different words um, to shed light on it. So here we have this parable of this lost son. I'm saying the parable of the lost son is similar to the parable of the tares in that signs signify things. People, actions in the parable signify other people and actions. The one signifies something other than just one literal shepherd. The 99 signify something. The lost son signifies something. Going out there to get him and leaving the 99 in the wilderness signifies something. Getting him, throwing him on your shoulders. You ever read the Old Testament? There's a text in the Old Testament. Well, I'm going to get there in a second. It talks about the Lord throwing his sheep over his shoulders. Going back home and rejoicing signifies something else than just going to a literal house and, you know, having a party. So what man among you, Luke 15.4, this is Jesus' question to those that could hear him speak this parable. By the way, when he says he spoke it to them, I take that to mean his first and primary focus is, is the Pharisees and scribes. But there are tax collectors, extortioners, citizens, along with other, along with the sinners, that worked for the Roman government and took exacted taxes from people and increased what they should have taken. And people knew them. They were scoundrels. People didn't like them. Um, so Jesus is hanging around tax collectors and sinners. They had came to hear, come, come to hear him. The Pharisees and scribes grumble, murmur, complain. He spoke this parable to them, which includes... Primarily, first and foremost, the Pharisees and scribes, but there are lessons to be learned for others in the audience, which included tax collectors and sinners. And by the time you get to Luke 16, 1, you realize, oh, his disciples were there listening to him as well. So there's lessons for everybody. Now, what man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. First, I want you to note something first, that Jesus' question has cultural parallels with the first century. We can't deny that, okay? Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi. There are cultural things, things that those people did, and he uses common things like shepherd and sheep quite often to illustrate some sort of spiritual realities that go beyond just shepherds and sheep in the first century. There were ample examples of shepherd and sheep in the first century in the, in the entire Middle East. These could be seen easily on the hillsides and pasture lands of the rural areas. Now, if I didn't hold the view I do about parables, I would paint in your mind's eye what the mountainside look, must have looked like, how many sheep might have been up there, what the rocks were protruding out of the ground, any of the bushes and shrubbery, and if there was anything else there. And I'd spend 20 minutes telling you something about it. I'm not going to do that. But I will say this, since Jesus is tell, telling his parable to them, we'd expect the Pharisees and scribes to be in the story. And if you don't, I'm telling you, Expect the scribes and Pharisees to be in the story. And guess who else is in the story? The tax collectors and the sinners. And guess who else is in the story? The disciples who used to be tax collectors and sinners. 
And I think it, it's not a stretch because of the type of literature that is it, that's here. In one sense, signified in the story is everybody sitting here this morning. What's interesting, one thing that's interesting is that Jesus likens them to shepherds, doesn't he? What man among you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? It seems like he says, what man among you having a hundred sheep, you therefore must be shepherds of some sense, right? So the scribes and Pharisees, Pharisees and scribes, are identified by Jesus in some sense as shepherds. The problem is that Pharisees and scribes had added to the law of the Old Testament making shepherding a forbidden trade. So now if that's true, that's what some people say. You know what, by the time of the first century, shepherding for a Pharisee or a scribe was, a, was an unclean thing to do. If that's true, I'm pretty sure it is, then if you're a shepherd, if you're a Pharisee or a scribe and you abominate shepherds and shepherding, you think it's filthy and dirty and beneath you, it's worse than trash collecting. And Jesus comes in and says, what man among you having a hundred sheep? And you're thinking, and your cranial apparati are working, you had your two or three cups of coffee, you're going, he thinks we're shepherds? Now, they ought to have been shepherds of God's flock, but they weren't. They were self-motivated, self-centered, stealers, robbers, not shepherds. Self-righteous. Shepherds, by the way, what the Pharisees at first think is happening in the story is actually what is not happening. That's called irony. I think you're going to see irony here. If you don't know what that means, we'll talk about it later, maybe. If not, it's not important. Second, note that Jesus' question has connections with the Old Testament. Jesus' question has connections with the Old Testament. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, go after the one which is which is lost until he finds it. We sang Psalm 23. There's a shepherd in Psalm 23 itself. There are various connections, I think, made by Jesus in this parable uh, with the Old Testament. We've already seen this. The Old Testament speaks about God, the good shepherd who finds the lost sheep, and the bad shepherds of Israel who were rebuked by the prophets. Remember that? Psalm 23, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34. I'm not going to read the passages. They were rebuked by the prophets for scattering the flock. The prophets foresee a day in which God would raise up his branch, David, and be in the midst of bad shepherd doing a good shepherding work, all the while as a rebuke to the bad shepherds. That's all in the Old Testament. The Old Testament also speaks about a new David who will rule over God's people, his flock. This son of David comes from the Jewish nation. He is one of them. Jesus is identified as the son of David and heir of the promises made to David about having a son rule God's house forever. 
The good shepherd of the Old Testament is God. The bad shepherds of the Old Testament are the religious leaders of Israel. Now, let's just think about it. Okay, in this parable, who do you think the bad shepherds are? Pharisees and scribes. Who do you think the good shepherd is? The one who leaves them in the wilderness and goes out and gets a lost son. Who do you think that signifies? Billy Graham. Or who's that other guy from South America? I used to like him. Anyway, Richard Barcellus. Um, I'm in this parable, but I, I'm, not, I'm not that one that goes out and get the lost sheep. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel were also speaking about a future day, and I think we're looking at that day in this parable in part. However, a day in which God himself would be finding lost sheep in the midst of bad shepherds connected to promises made about David. Just listen to this. This is two verses from Ezekiel 34, 11, and 12. For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Where does that, where do the concepts of, of one in the midst of Israel going out and seeking and saving come from? Does it come exclusively from the words of Jesus or Matthew or Mark or Luke or John in the New Testament? No. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Third, Old Testament connections was my second observation from Luke 15.4. Third, note its meaning in light of the culture of the day and especially the meaning of this question Jesus asks, especially in connection with the Old Testament. Christ is the one among them who finds the lost, the very thing he came to do. Remember that J.C. Ryle quote? The Pharisees and scribes were murmuring that the Son of Man became one of us for us and for our salvation and was doing the very thing he came to do. And these guys, Pharisees and scribes, prided themselves on being the elite intellectuals of the day, fully endowed with full knowledge of the Old Testament. Okay? Do you think they got the Old Testament right? They missed the, they missed the bullseye of the Old Testament. What's the bullseye of the Old Testament? Your best life now. No, the best Savior ever. He is to come. And in this parable, Jesus is assuming all that that he has come. Christ is the one among them who finds the lost. This is what the Pharisees and scribes had a problem with. The 99 are the Pharisees and scribes. I'm going to try to show you that. The bad shepherds of Israel. Probably representative also of people who think they are right with God, but for the wrong reasons. I know a couple weeks ago when I introduced this, somebody came up and says, who's the 99? And I said, Pharisees and scribes. I said, the Pharisees and scribes. And the person went, like, I've never heard that before. Well, you don't hear that from the 19th century on. But all my old friends that do not collect dust on my shelves, by the way, all the old guys, like if you read a Spurgeon sermon on this, he would have said it. He would have probably said, uh, our ancestor, Mr. Keach. By the way, Spurgeon's church 
over like a 150-year period, had three pastors, I think. Was it Keach, Gill, some other guy, and then Spurgeon? Or... Anyway, he would have said, Mr. 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 Keach. That's a 17th century uh, commentator on Luke's parable here. And he taught that the 99 were the Pharisees and scribes. In the 18th century, another man was raised up by the Lord, John Gill, listen to him, the 90 and 9, the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. He leaves in the wilderness. Now watch what he does here. In a state of unregeneracy. The wilderness is a bad thing. By the way, the wilderness, we usually, if you know your Old Testament, you connect it with the wilderness wanderings of ancient Egypt, ancient Egypt, ancient Israel, right? When they were in Egyptian bondage, and then God, through the, what's called the Exodus, saves them out from, Exodus, out from their Egyptian bondage, and then they wander for 40 years out in this dangerous wilderness, right? But in one sense, the first concept of uh, being in an unsafe place would have been with Adam and Eve, right? When they were barred from entering back into the Garden of Eden. That outside of Eden, the sacred place, is a common place where both saints and sinners live, but it's, it's a wilderness. Now watch this. He leaves them in a state of unregeneracy. This is Gilligan, so-called, because in those that are in such a state, nothing is sown or planted. What grows there is natural. There's no seed of grace, no plants of pleasure, no engrafted word, no fruits of righteousness, nothing but thorns and briars of sins and corruptions. Man was originally placed in a garden, sinning against God. He forfeited his happy situation and was drove out from it and wandering from God, he fell into this wilderness state. I agree with John Gill. You know what it's like to be lost in this world? It's, it's like you're a beast out in wilderness and there's other beasts out there ready to devour you, especially the king of the beast of devouring beasts, the roaring lion himself, Satan. This world's not a pleasant place. It's a vicious place. And many, most of us, have scars from our wilderness days. Notice that when the shepherd finds the sheep, he came home. That's found in verse 6. When the shepherd, when the one that leaves the 99 and goes out and finds the lost sheep, he brings him home. Now, if you're tracking with me in the older type mindset, you're going, what's this home referred to? Well, some old commentators say, ultimately heaven. Yes, that's true. Um, Benjamin Keach, that guy from the 17th century, says this refers to the church and heaven as the special, special abode of God. Not back to the 99 in the wilderness, See, he leaves the 99, he goes and gets the one, and he comes back to the 99. Nope. Right? He leaves the 99, he goes out, he finds the one, and he brings him home to rejoice with his, with his friends. Doesn't come back to the same place. Then in verse 7, Jesus, Jesus identifies, I think, the 99 for us. They are just persons who need no repentance. 
Now, are there really, in actual fact, just, utterly, totally, perfectly, perpetually, personally righteous people that don't need to repent on the earth? No, there are none. Are there some people who think they don't need repentance? Yes. So what do you think he means by this? That they're actually just righteous Pharisees and scribes that don't need repentance and therefore don't need Jesus? No, but they think that of themselves, right? Here's Gill again. These were persons that made great pretensions to religion, were righteous in their own eyes, and in their own account never were astray nor needed repentance. So our Lord is claiming to be God in the midst of bad shepherds who leaves the bad shepherds as a good shepherd to save sinners. This is good news for us. One man says, puts it this way, you're the bad shepherds of Israel. You have lost your sheep. You should go after them. But you have failed to do so. To compensate for your mistakes, I'm going after them. You should rejoice with me. Instead, you come complaining, murmuring. Can't you see that I'm making up for your mistakes? I represent the divine presence in the community, and the mantle of the house of David has been placed on my shoulders. I think he's right. The cultural parallels are used to illustrate that the Old Testament's promises of a good shepherd, both God and David in one person, are being fulfilled by Jesus. This is what um, Christianity has identified as the incarnation. And the word who was with God and who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And one of his capacities, prophet, priest, and king, was to dwell among us as a shepherd, as the good shepherd promised in the Old Testament, who would come in the midst of bad shepherds, rebuke them, and do what they should have been doing, going out and getting lost sinners and preaching the gospel to them. Jesus is prosecuting the Pharisees and scribes in light of the Old Testament predictions about Israel's bad shepherds in the writings of the prophets. A prosecutor. He's going he's to prove their guilt. That's what he's doing. Prophets prosecuted, if you read the prophets of the Old Testament, scathing prosecution, right? Scathing rebukes of the people of God. And in the midst of their scathing scathing rebukes, reminding them of what they ought to have been in light of the Mosaic law, there's also tucked in the prophets glimmers of hope, right? Have you ever read either major or minor prophets and you go, I've I've read this before. And then you start looking at your cross-references and you go, that's, that's quoted in Matthew 2, and it's applied to Jesus. And then you're in Zechariah 6 or whatever, and you're reading it, and you're going, that's referenced in John chapter whatever it is, I forgot. Jesus was a prophet. He's prosecuting the enemies of God and God's dear people. Here, the Pharisees and scribes. Fourth observation is, a question, who is the lost sheep or better? What does it signify? We, we could ask the question, what is the lost sheep? Well, it's a sheep that's apart from its shepherd. Okay, that's on the real literal level. But then we could ask the sheep, who is the lost sheep? Seems like it's signifying a person, right? If the one who leaves the 99 is not a literal shepherd, but it signifies one who shepherds, namely our Lord, 
The lost sheep seems to signify something other than a literal lost sheep. You think this Pharisee's teaching, wow, watch Jesus in the first century. He left the scribes and Pharisees, and he went out and he helped a literal shepherd find a literal lost sheep. He found sheep and gave it back to his shepherd. I don't think that's what's happening. Well, I know that's not what's happening. Sinners among Jews and non-Jews who Christ came to save and does indeed save are signified by the sign of the lost sheep, the sign of the sign of uh, that which sig- that which excuse me the lost sheep signifies a lost sinner and if you're a saved sinner it signifies you in your lost estate and if you're a lost sinner it signifies you in your lost estate if you are an elect lost sinner it signifies you in your lost estate okay we're going to go use mr gill again to express the love of christ towards them more and to magnify the riches of his grace in their salvation, these he went after in redemption. Okay, so he left the 99 and he goes after the one. He came forth from his father and he came down from heaven for their sakes. He died to gather them together. This is, uh, this is John Gill saying, let's read the entire Bible to help us Mind the entire Bible to help us understand what it means for Christ to go get, go out, go forth, act in such a manner as to find and save his elect bride. He died to gather them together and represented them all in his sufferings and death. He bore all their sins and made reconciliation for them and procured the full pardon of them. He satisfied the law and justice of God. He wrought out an everlasting righteousness and obtained eternal redemption and a complete salvation for them. And he went after them in effectual vocation. Old words, huh? What does he mean by effectual vocation? Just listen to the rest of it. Let me go back and read Luke 15 really briefly again, because I think it helps to remind us of what's going on in these word pictures. And go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Before conversion, an elect sinner is without Christ and goes astray from him, nor does he ever come to Christ till Christ comes after him and lays, lays, lays hold upon him. Let me read that again. Before conversion, before you became a Christian, an elect sinner is without Christ and goes astray from him, nor does he ever come to Christ. If you're a Christian, did you ever come to Christ? Yes, but listen to what he says. He never... Nor does he ever come to Christ till till Christ comes after him. If Christ doesn't come after us, we'll never go after him. What is this sign signifying in this part of the parable? Christ goes after sinners and finds them. And he lays hold upon him. And he comes himself and he takes possession of them to find his lost sheep by redeeming grace. He came into this world of wickedness, sorrow and trouble, of cruelty and barbarity. And the reason of his coming here was because his sheep were here. Man, I read that last Tuesday. I'm going, why didn't I read this before? 
And the reason of his coming here, this world of wickedness, sorrow, trouble, cruelty, and barbarity, was because his sheep were here. He came after them and on their account and defined them by effectual calling. Remember he said effectual vocation before. Vocation is a technical word for calling. He still comes. You say, well, this is Jesus only in the first century. Okay? Son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's only signifying his earthly ministry and that's it. Nothing subsequent to it. And John Gill's going... No, it's a word picture signifying, yes, his earthly ministry, but what he does also upon his exaltation. He still comes after sinners. He still comes into the world by his word and spirit. God's elector in the world. Christ sends his gospel into it. And by his spirit and grace comes and separates them from the men of it. Now, Christ goes after them till he finds them. That's right in the text. Christ goes after them till he finds them. The reasons why he thus goes after them are not their number, nor their nature, which is no better than others, nor any previous dispositions or good character. For those designed here were publicans and sinners, nor any further improvements and service by them for they were the base and foolish things of this world, 1 Corinthians. Christ does not go after them because they're near at hand and so easily looked for, for they were afar off. But he goes after them because of his love to them. He goes after us he went after us in our lifetime in this effectual vocation by, great, by the grace of the Spirit and Word because he would. Why would he? Because he loves us. Why does he love us? He was, he was given us in this purpose of redemption before the world was by the Father to be saved in time. Not just to have the work of salvation done for them, on behalf of them, salvation accomplished, but to bring the benefits of that which he did for us, his doing and his dying and rising on our behalf, to bring the benefits actually into our existential experience, <laughs> our personal, our lives, our souls. Um, you want to know a nickname for John Gill? If you ever forget... His name is John Gill. Just call him Dr. Voluminous. Our brother Cam Porter calls him Dr. Voluminous, which means the brother can write a lot of words. And he does. And he just has a clause in italics, and that's the Bible words. And then he's got like 8,000 words under it, trying to expound the words in light of the entirety of Scripture. And that's what I'm trying to do here. What does it mean that he left the 99 went out and found the one? It means a lot of things. Signifies many things. But because of his love to them, it says, he says, and the relation between them as shepherd and sheep, and because of his father's will and his own obligation by covenant, and because of his own interest and glory. So let's read the words again. 
What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, the Pharisees don't answer the question. It's a question. But if they did answer it, they would say, none of us. That's not what we do. We're not into that. So we're not, we're not um, lowly shepherds who go out and mingle. Why would we want to leave our tribe? We're cool. We got a group. We're called Pharisees and scribes. We have titles. We have badges. We have public honor. We don't mingle. We don't go down there and mingle with soiled, stained, dirty, sinful sinners, tax collectors, and all that. We're not like Jesus. That's the whole whole point of the question. You're utterly unlike him, but you should have been like him. Well, it's 1041, and I'm going to stop there and just encourage you to think along with me. Hear these words again. He spoke this parable to them. All kinds of signs signifying things in these words. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Only one among them would do that, and he did it. Now, some have asked the question, wait a minute, Jesus is saying the one was among the 99. The 99 are the Pharisees and scribes, people with public titles, rabbis. Was Jesus a rabbi? Yeah. Was Jesus among them? He was one of them in one sense, right? So he's saying, among the, 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 the shepherds of Israel, I have arisen from among them as a unique one. As the one promised in Psalm 23, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and a plethora, a fullness of other promises all over the entirety of the Old Testament, they ultimately terminate, not in the Pharisees and scribes, not in you and me, but they terminate, all these promises terminate in one person, God, who's also David in the midst of bad shepherds doing the work of shepherding sheep. This is, you know, I have a lot more to say about this. Jesus gives a commentary, by the way, on the one who left the 99 in verses 5 and 6. We'll look at this after the break. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, He calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Since I don't want to go too long, I'm going to stop there. I hope you have seen the beauty of Jesus, the loving Savior of sinners, who was rich, being rich, he became poor, rich in intra-Trinitarian bliss and communion with Father and Spirit from eternity unto eternity, does this mysterious thing and becomes poor. His, His poverty is our dignity. Our dignity is that we're humanity made in the image of God, male and female. His poverty is that he became one of us. 
Why would he become one of us? Why would he assume to himself a rational soul and a real body? Because that's what needed to be fixed, repaired, doing by a human needed to be done who represented others because the first human who represented others did things that brought catastrophe upon us, the first Adam. So, there, by the way, there's last Adam stuff in this parable as well. This is not just the new David, great David's greater son. This is a greater Adam, a new Adam, a new one who represents his seed and who's going to bring them not to the wilderness, but take them out of the wilderness and bring them to glory. Thank you. I can close on that because I got an amen from St. Jess. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you how its uh, simple words can often have deep-sounding truths that are contained in them, and that we can know this by reading the Bible as a whole book and allowing it to shed its light on parables like this one. We thank you for the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We thank you that we, he was found uh, as a man, as a servant, humbled himself, obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross, was exalted by virtue of his righteousness to a resurrected status of glory, who ascended, who sits, who has a current session, who rules and reigns, who is coming again, and who will consummate the ages. Thank you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes upon him would not perish, but enjoy everlasting life. Bless your word, and now as we sing in response to it, help us to praise you appropriately. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.